Well, friends, we are coming to the end of a five-part series in the book of Jonah. We'll begin Habakkuk next week, and then Obadiah after that. These brief series, they come and go quickly. The book of Jonah, we've thought about it a few different ways. I've introduced it a few different times. It is a book that is well known to most people who have grown up in the church, and it's well known to us largely because of the well-known story of Jonah and the fish. I hope for you, as it has been the case for me, that as we have considered the book of Jonah, that you have learned some things perhaps that you did not know before, and that you have been struck by the mercy and the compassion of God, because that is the point of the book. We're going to see that again today, that the Lord is merciful and the Lord is compassionate. And his mercy and his compassion stands out in stark contrast, particularly when we compare him to ourselves, or even when we compare him to his prophet Jonah. When you think of Jonah from this time forward, I hope you think the mercy of God, and I hope that you think Christ who came and conquered sin and death and hell for you. So open your Bibles if you have them to Jonah chapter 4 the final chapter of this short book in the Old Testament. If you don't have your Bible with you today, don't sweat that. We'll get the words to the text on the screen behind me. It will help you to be able to follow along as we go. Perhaps this is your first sermon in this series, first time you've been here, or maybe you've missed a couple as it is summertime and people are in and out of town. I'm going to briefly fly over the first three chapters for us, so you're in luck today if you have missed some of the content prior to now. Beginning in Jonah 1, we read that the word of the Lord came to his prophet named Jonah. And the Lord commissioned Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh that was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh to preach the message that God would have him preach. Now we're going to look in chapter 4 today pointedly at the reason why he did not want to go, but we've considered this already. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh to preach a message to the enemies of Israel because he feared that God, because God is merciful, would relent from destroying Nineveh. So Jonah, for his part, fled from the presence of the Lord, or at least he tried to. The Lord, though, does not leave his children to their own devices. Praise be to his name. So God relentlessly pursued Jonah, even as Jonah was running in the opposite direction of the call of God on his life. We know the story, how in the boat, Jonah is seeking to sail across the Mediterranean Sea to Tarshish, and the Lord hurls storms upon the sea. It's tumultuous, it's dangerous, the sailors are afraid, everybody is freaking out and praying to their gods, and Jonah says, just throw me overboard. Rather than saying, I'm going to turn around, we need to turn around, guys, I have sinned against the Lord, I need to go to Nineveh, he says, just kill me, just throw me overboard. The sailors do this, and the storms, the wind ceases. This is so impactful upon the sailors that they began to fear the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices to him. Jonah in the water is swallowed by a great fish that God appointed. He was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and it was there that God brought his prophet to repentance. After the fish has vomited Jonah out on the dry land, sometime after this, the word of the Lord came again to Jonah a second time. This is the beginning of chapter 3. 
the Lord commissions him yet again to go to Nineveh, just as he had commissioned him before. Tells him, here's the word that you're to preach. And Jonah, for his part, goes this time. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the word of impending judgment, a message of repentance that God had given him. And the entire city repents. From the least of them to the king of Nineveh. They repent. Verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, when he saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So that brings us to chapter 4. Look now to chapter 4 and verse 1 as I will read God's word for us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Amen. We thank God for his word. It is an interesting way that the book ends, and we'll get there in a minute. It kind of leaves us, it's very open-ended, kind of leaves us hanging with a question, and we don't get Jonah's response. My plan is simple. I want to consider the text in two sections, verses 1 to 4, and then verses 5 to 11. So we're going to think about the text together in those two large sections. We're going to reflect on some things and apply some things as we go. And then after we've done that, I've got two additional points of reflection or application. I'll try to make those things plain to you. I don't really have headers or titles, nothing clever or cute for you today. But we're going to aim to be clear in how we understand the Word of God. So these two parts of the text, verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 11, again, I don't have headers for each, but in both sections, put these lenses on. As we look at the text, we will see Jonah's anger and the Lord's compassion. So look for that. We're also going to see Jonah's hardness of heart and the Lord's mercy. So look for that. 
And as we do, consider Jonah. And rather than doing what we're prone to do, just kind of thinking, how could he be so hard-hearted? How could he lack compassion and mercy altogether? Rather than kind of dropping bows on Jonah, in Jonah, see yourself. See yourself in this man who has a nature just like yours and mine. All right, verses 1 to 4. Here we go. First paragraph of our text today. You can put your eyes on verse 1. We read there, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Or it could be rendered, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. The question is, what is it? The it that displeased the prophet exceedingly. The it that was exceedingly evil in his eyes. What is it? Well, the it is that God relented and did not destroy Nineveh. Verse 10. That's what's evil in his sight. That God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do, and he did not do it. And Jonah thinks, that's evil. That's exceedingly displeasing to me. Incorporated in that it that is displeasing to Jonah is the fact that Nineveh was given the opportunity to repent in the first place. Incorporated in that it is that God had granted the Ninevites repentance and then had spared them. So in short, Jonah is greatly displeased with the mercy and the compassion of the Lord. It is exceedingly evil to him in his eyes. I mean, let that sit, that the mercy and the compassion of God would seem evil. The second half of verse 1. Not only was Jonah exceedingly displeased, we read he was angry. So he's indignant. He's mad at God. He's mad at God because of God's mercy and because of God's compassion. There's much that could be said. But let's just say, for now, in this whole thing, Jonah is not a man after God's own heart. Put your eyes on verse 2. Jonah then prays to the Lord. And you're going to notice in all of this, I mean, Jonah's aware of God's character. He prays to the Lord and he's honest. We'll give him that. He makes it clear why he had tried to flee to Tarshish in the first place. And so this prayer is kind of him saying the quiet part out loud, right? So here he goes. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Like I knew this was going to happen. Why did I know? How did I know that this would happen? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you to be that. The language here about the Lord's character being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that language is found all throughout the scriptures. Exodus 34, Psalm 103, Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9. We could name many other texts. The explicit connection that's made here between the character of God 
merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and him relenting from disaster, those two things being explicitly connected, that happens here. It also happens in the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2 and verse 13, to be specific. There, from the pen of that prophet, those words are written to give hope to God's people. Joel writes that even though the people of God have brought ruin upon themselves and they deserve to have that ruin realized at the hands of God, they can return to the Lord. Why? Says Joel, because you can, even though you deserve punishment, you can return to the Lord because he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. All right, so, how wayward is Jonah's heart? God's character that results in him relenting from disaster against people who deserve it, that should give hope to any Israelite, to any saint of God with even an ounce of self-awareness. But for Jonah, what should produce hope, what should give hope, produces anger. That's how blind he is to his own need. And that's how hard his heart is. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he feared that the Lord would bestow forgiveness on Israel's hated enemy. And what Jonah had feared has become reality. And he's so upset about it that he's going to ask the Lord to kill him. Look at verse 3. He says, therefore, O Lord, he's continuing on in prayer, right? I knew this was going to happen. This is why I tried to flee. I know who you are. I knew what you'd do. Now, Lord, please take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. It's better to die in the eyes of Jonah than to have to live with this. Now, that's the second time that Jonah has functionally asked either the sailors or now God, just kill me, just end this. And it won't be the last time that he uses that language. Verse 4, how does God respond? The Lord asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer. At least it's not recorded for us. Jonah is not well. That's clear. His heart is wayward and hard and he is blind. He is angry that the Lord would forgive Israel's hated enemy. He is angry that the Lord would forgive people who are the foremost of sinners from his perspective. He is angry that the Lord would save those who don't deserve it from his perspective. Now there's a great irony in this whole thing because remember, Jonah was pretty grateful for the mercy of God when he was in the belly of the fish. So it's not that he's opposed to the mercy of God wholesale. The belly of the fish accepted, though, throughout this account, Jonah does not see the depth of his own corruption. That's clear. The depth of his need. It doesn't seem that he sees the depth of Israel's corruption. 
or the depth of Israel's need either. And so, he doesn't see the depth of the Lord's mercy and compassion and patience toward Israel and toward him. None of that is registering. Now, I'm going to say something, and it's going to be one of those moments where you're going to be like, yeah, bro, I mean, of course, we're with you. I'm just going to say it anyway. God does not save good people. He does not save good people. Now, we're nodding in agreement, but we must stop thinking in these terms. When it comes to justification, being declared just in the sight of God, when it comes to God's mercy and God's grace, we must stop thinking in these terms that God saves good people. The way we talk gives us away. We talk often effusively about how good certain people are. As though they will make it to heaven in part based on their own steam. Now, caveat. Upon the new birth and union with Christ, is sanctification real? Yes. Is the transformation of life real? Yes, you better believe it is. And we will never, through our spiritual and upright living, make ourselves worthy of God's salvation. We will never, as we've said before, turn ourselves into the kind of people that God would have been happy to save in the first place. In our own merit, standing on our own, we have no claim on God's mercy. None. We are debtors to grace, every single one of us. And so was Jonah. And so were every one of the saints who appear on the pages of this book. Debtors to grace. No claim on mercy. How prone we are to forget that. The Lord is in the business of saving ungodly people because that's all there is. The Lord saves, here's another way to frame it, his enemies. Because that's what we all are by nature. Jonah's warped out of his frame because God would be merciful to Israel's enemies, but God is the God who saves his enemies. You guys remember Stephen? Acts, book of Acts? Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Acts 6, 5. Who was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people, Acts 6, 8. He spoke in ways that were wise and from the Spirit that his opponents could not refute. This is all through Acts chapter 6. Stephen was seized and brought before the religious leadership and was falsely accused of blasphemy. When questioned by the high priest, he gave a speech that's recorded in Acts chapter 7. And it's quite a speech. It is a brilliant and concise summary of the Old Testament. Of God's ways with his people and of his people's persistent sinfulness. The fact that Israel has always been stiff-necked. 
Now, through this entire thing, we're told, Acts 6.15, that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. But what he said landed like a ton of bricks. And he was stoned to death for it. Now, so that the people could stone Stephen, they had to shed some outer garments, right? So that they could move better, throw stones hard enough to kill someone. And they laid these garments that they were taking off at the feet of a man named Saul. We are told, Acts 8.1, that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. We are told, Acts 8.3, that Saul was ravaging the church, dragging men and women off to be imprisoned. And God justified that man named Saul. Forgave that man named Saul, whose name would later be changed to Paul. Absolved him of guilt. No wonder Paul could write words like these. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or words like these. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or words like these. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Saints, when it comes to us in ourselves, we are weak, we are ungodly, we are sinners. It is on account of Christ and the mercy and the grace of God in him alone that we are adopted, call God Father, that we are justified, declared righteous, and that we're forgiven of sin. This is true for all of God's people from all time. Do you do well to be angry? No. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. Again, no header. Look for Jonah's hardness of heart, his anger, the Lord's mercy and compassion. Verse 5. As has been the case, Jonah is still dug in. He makes his way out of the city. And dude's about to pitch a tent and pitch a fit, basically. He makes a shelter a booth, right? So this would have been a temporary shelter that he constructs so that he has some shade. And he's going to sit and watch and see what will become of the city. Now, we're not told what exactly is in Jonah's mind. Again, we don't know if this is just him, temper tantrum, he's going to make a display, or if he thinks that his antics will somehow move the needle with the Lord, and maybe God will finally see the error of his ways, and maybe he'll end up destroying the city after all. We don't know. So he sits and he's going to watch. He's going to wait. Then in verse 6, an object lesson in mercy and compassion begins. The Lord, we read there, appoints a plant, very quickly we might add, to sprout and come up over Jonah so that he would be shaded. And it was to save him from his discomfort, literally to save him from his evil. 
And we read, too, the end of verse 6, that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now remember, he was exceedingly angry about God's mercy to Nineveh. He's exceedingly glad about God's kindness to him. Verse 7. At dawn the next day, God appoints a worm that attacks the plant. And it causes the plant to wither. That very day, it withers. That's a good little mini lesson on means too, right? Like God doesn't just directly strike the plant. He appoints a worm to attack the plant and it dies. He's a God of means, not just ends. That's for another day though. Verse 8. The plant has withered, right? The sun rises in the sky the next day. And we read that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, really hot. Jonah's shelter that he had built was apparently inadequate to shade him as he needed to keep him cool enough. The plant had quite literally been a godsend for him. But now the plant is gone. The sun is beating down on him and a hot wind is blowing through. How does Jonah respond? Shouldn't be surprised. For the third time in four chapters, he says, kill me. He's angry. right, And doubles down on the fact that it's better for him to die than to live. And then in verse 9, the Lord asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, this is an object lesson, right? Notice, too, how God just stays in this. Take heart in seeing that. Jonah is stubborn, he's dug in, he's wayward, he's hard of heart, he's blind, and the Lord stays in it with him. Just continues to reason with him. The Lord ain't going anywhere, right? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This time Jonah answers, and he... His answer is not great. It's honest, but it's not great. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die, as a matter of fact. So he continues to be defiant. None of these things show up in the Bible storybooks you read either, by the way. This is why it's good to study the scriptures. To learn of God and his ways with us, right? And to learn who and what we are in Adam. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord again, he's in it, continues to reason with his wayward prophet. At any point in these proceedings, you realize the Lord would have been entirely justified to be like, I'm done with this fool. But he doesn't. He says to Jonah, he's going to go back and forth with Jonah after Jonah has just acted like a teenager who just got grounded. He's going to go back and forth with him. And he says, paraphrase, you pity the plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in that same span. I mean, it was literally here today and gone tomorrow. And if that's true, then should not I pity the city of Nineveh with all of its people and its animals? The Lord mentions animals in addition to the people because Jonah's warped out of his frame over a plant. 
Right? So it's appropriate that God would say, should I not pity this great city with all these people and with these animals, right? If Jonah's worked up over a plant, should the Lord not have compassion on the people and the animals of such a great city? The answer is obvious. Of course he should. We're not told how Jonah responded. And that's appropriate on a couple of levels. The first reason is because there is no other answer to give, but, well, of course, Lord, you should have pity. But then secondly, it's an appropriate finishing note because the depth and the breadth of the Lord's mercy is on display in verses 10 and 11. And the depth and the breadth of the Lord's mercy is the point of the book of Jonah. So it's appropriate that it ends this way with that kind of unresolved note of mercy. So now, friends, in the time that we have left, I've got a couple of points for our reflection and further application. So this first one, not a great header or anything, but I'm just going to give this to you. So consider Jonah and consider the Lord's dealings with him and then take heart as a saint of God. Consider Jonah, consider the Lord's dealings with him and be encouraged, be comforted as you consider the mercy and the compassion, the faithfulness of your God. All right, in this entire book, in these four chapters, there are perhaps two good things that we could say about Jonah. Two. The first is that he repents in the belly of the fish. That's good. And the second is that he actually goes to Nineveh the second time God commissions him. And we thought about last week, his heart was not in it, but he went. And it's always good to obey the voice of the Lord. So those are two good things we can say. But the rest of it is bad. It's bad. I mean, this, this book, this ain't a good look for a prophet of God. There are a number of things that we've observed throughout this series, but something for us to notice too is that Jonah was brought to repentance in the belly of the fish, and that was legitimate, genuine. And yet, we find that even after that episode, after he's brought to repentance, we find him hard-hearted, dug in, doing the same things he was doing before, just as defiant as he was before. That's instructive for us in and of itself. That the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance, where we will often find ourselves battling the same things, struggling in similar ways, and we are yet again at the throne of grace asking for forgiveness and mercy. But Jonah is defiant. He's disobedient throughout this account. His heart is completely off. It's off the rails, man. At multiple points, I've already said he acted like a teenager who just got grounded. He acts like a toddler who didn't get his way, who's pitching a fit in the aisle of Walmart. You know, I mean, it's that bad. It's that immature. I want to briefly interject a thought here. And I don't think that I need to qualify this, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to say it. If we think that what makes a person a Christian is what he does or how he feels about the things of God, this book, Jonah, will smack us upside the head. If we think that what makes a person a Christian is what he does, 
or how he feels in any given moment or any given season about the things of God, this book will smack us upside the head. Because in any given moment, any given day, any given season, we may examine the life of a child of God and see disobedience. We might see hardness of heart. We might see coldness toward the things of God. We might even see defiance regarding the word of God, like Jonah. And yet, God is patient. He doesn't go anywhere. He pursues his child. When his child is booking it as fast as he can in the other direction, he pursues. And God perseveres. Seen through this lens, Jonah is perhaps one of the most encouraging books in all of the scripture. Why do I say that? Because Jonah is exhibit A. Hear me. He is exhibit A that if you are the Lord's, you are the Lord's. Remember, I said, see yourself in Jonah. He's just like us. Well, saints, see yourself here. If you are the Lord's, you are his. The Lord will have his way with us, his children. And that's good news because it is far better that we are in his hands than in our own. And now he will use living and active means to do this. There will be pain. Like, you run off into sin, there will be pain. I mean, unfathomable pain. Doesn't mean that the Lord keeping us and having his way with us doesn't mean we're going to like it. Discipline is never pleasant. There's a reason why we're told over and over again in the scriptures that we are to bear up under the discipline of God. Think Hebrews 12. The loving father that he is, he disciplines those he loves. Why does he do it? He does it so that we might share in his holiness. So bear up under the discipline of God. Strengthen your feeble hands and your weak knees and bear up under the discipline of God because he is preparing you for something that is beyond your comprehension. He is working in you that you might share in his holiness. The fact that discipline is not pleasant, the fact that the Lord having his way with us sometimes will mean discomfort as he is sanctifying us, all that's true. But we can trust our Savior because he is merciful and he is patient. You remember Saul, Paul. We talked about him earlier. We talked about words that he wrote. Well, he wrote some other ones that are very applicable. Listen to these. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So says Paul, this is a true saying, and it's worthy of acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Not that I was, but I am. And I received mercy. Mercy. I didn't get what I deserved as the foremost of sinners. Why? so that Jesus Christ could display his perfect patience for all the saints, so that we would know that just as Christ has been merciful and patient with Paul, 
He will be merciful and patient with us. Next and final piece of application and further reflection. I have no title. So this is just whatever you want to call it. I want us to track with me for a minute. I want us to do, this is not to be pejorative. This is, I, I mean this to help us. Let's do what Christians often do when we go to the Bible. Track with me. Jonah 4, the book of Jonah in general. Let's follow Jonah around. Let's observe him. Let's figure out how we should be like him and how we should not be like him. Let's moralize Jonah for a minute. Okay? Well, in chapter 4, there really is not anything that we would want to emulate. So that list is short. I mean, bro is honest. That's about all we can say. But there are a number of things in chapter 4 that we would seek to avoid. Here are three. One, we should not despise the mercy of God. Two, we should not despise the character of God. Three, we should not operate as though we deserve God's favor. All right, noted. Let's keep doing what we often do. What people in Bible colleges and churches across this land are often taught to do. Look at a text and ask these questions. Is there a sin to avoid? Is there an example to follow? Is there wisdom to glean? Is there a command to obey? And then we're going to look at the text and answer those questions. And man, we've studied and applied the Bible. But back to our three, back to our three things that we would want to avoid. One, we shouldn't despise the mercy of God, but conversely, we should love it. Two, we shouldn't despise the character of God. Conversely, we should love and revere him. Three, we shouldn't operate as though we deserve God's favor. Conversely, we should be humble and we should see ourselves as debtors to grace. All right question. Even if you're going to make those observations that are good, question. How is any of that going to be realized in your life or mine? How? Because the way many people act, it's as though we just say, okay, y'all, head on out of here today and love the mercy of God. Good service. And that's it. To love the mercy of God or to love it more to love the character of God or love him more, to see myself as a debtor to grace or to see that more so requires a change at the heart level. How is that going to happen? Are we, through our own efforts, going to change our own hearts? Don't think so. So seriously, how will this happen? Heart change. offer a suggestion. Perhaps if we want to not despise the mercy of God, but love it, we should look at the mercy of God alongside the justice of God. Ponder it. The mercy of God. Go deeper into the mercy of God. Pray for it. Sing about it. Come to the table and feed on it. It is Christ, the mercy of God in Christ, the gospel that changes hearts. 
The law, as good as it is, can't do that. It can't change the heart. The law can condemn, but it can't give life. The law can guide, but it can't change. Being told what to do or not to do won't change you. Beholding Christ, contemplating mercy alongside justice, that's where heart change occurs. As we behold him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, right? So along these lines, think with me for a moment. Justice and mercy of God. Think with me. We did this a few months ago in a way. We're going to do this again. We're going to consider the judgment seat of God. I think that John Calvin and others are right when they say that the entire discussion of justification begins by considering the judgment seat of God. The entire discussion of justification, the basis of that whole thing is this. The justice that we are talking about is not the justice of a human court, but of a heavenly one. Starting there informs us as to the kind of works and the kind of life that would satisfy the divine judgment. We would never talk of the righteousness of our works if we were affected with the slightest feeling and the slightest understanding of God's justice. We wouldn't. So may God affect us with even the slightest feeling and the slightest understanding of his justice today. When we are called to account by the heavenly judge, how will we reply? Envision the scene. We're not given a lot of detail in the scriptures. But we know that all men will be resurrected. And all men will stand before the judgment seat. So the entire human race is assembled. The reverence, the sobriety, the weight of that is incomprehensible. And then there is the one who sits on the seat on the throne of judgment. Before him, the mountains melt. Before him, the valleys split open. Before him, the earth heaves. His righteousness is so great that even angels can't handle it. From him, angels hide their faces. His brightness makes the heavens seem dim. In his sight, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less so man. So we've got to start there. Envision him. Sitting enthroned to examine the deeds of men and women. Who will stand confidently before his throne? Who will stand in his judgment? Well, one who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked. One who has never stood in the way of sinners. One who has never sat in the seat of scoffers. One who has meditated on God's law day and night. 
one who always walked blamelessly and always did what was right and always spoke truth in his heart. One who never slandered with his tongue. One who never did evil to his neighbor. That's the one. Let such a one come forward. The entirety of the human race assembled and no one's coming. No one's coming. Such a person does not exist amongst the sons and the daughters of Adam. And the words ring out. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then we have Nineveh. Here. We got Jonah. Got you. Got me. How could this ever go well for people like Nineveh, like Jonah, like you, like me? Well, only if a righteousness like we described is given to us. Only if satisfaction, adequate satisfaction, is made for our sins. Only if there is a perfect one to stand in our stead. Only if the right man is on our side. Only if the holiness and the righteousness and the satisfaction of the Christ is counted to us, will it go well? So that we can stand before him and it is as though we have never sinned or been a sinner. And it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as he was obedient in our place. That's the only way that it goes well. Beloved, remember Christ and what he came to do. Jesus was sent to earth by the Father with this commission. This is the prophet Isaiah. The servant of the Lord says this, I came to preach good news to the poor bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may display his glory. Remember Christ and what he said. That those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Remember his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What depth of mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So from now on, when you think about Jonah, think about the mercy of God. And think of the one who is your righteousness, who conquered hell and Satan and sin and death so that you might be free. Now let's go to the Father covered in his blood and righteousness and ask him to continue to minister to us this morning. Let's pray.